0: Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Today we celebrate what is at the epicenter of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we celebrate life renewed, life reborn, and life everlasting. The most dramatic and significant event of all time was when, after three days, Jesus Christ came back to life. Despite the shutdown as we experience the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, our God is not shut down. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled his words and believed. Jesus' resurrection was the final essential act in establishing his kingdom. Jesus' resurrection secures the kingdom of God, the heart of kingdom security is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Welcome to our fifth remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. And this morning, we continue in our Heart of the Kingdom message series, which links Jesus's Sermon on the Mount with the heart of the one who preached it. God is Lord of all creation, but more narrowly, the kingdom is his spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. And while the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, it includes real people with real bodies and real needs. In fact, in the kingdom of God, like the kingdoms of this world, it has an economy, health care system, employment, and environment for its citizens. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus unveils his plans for his kingdom. During his ministry, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom with prophetic teaching and signed miracles to draw attention to the fact that the kingdom was at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is his State of the Union address. He takes an honest look at the state of his people and reveals his plans for the future. Now, it wasn't his teaching, miracles, or death that launched the kingdom of God with Jesus as king. The kingdom of God began when Jesus rose from the dead. The first Christians staked everything on the resurrection, so much so that later the apostle Paul told, told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. All is lost and we are of all people to be pitied. In other words, If Jesus' death was not reversed by his bodily resurrection, the Christian faith has no foundation. And after the crucifixion, the Gospels describe the disciples cringing in locked rooms, terrified that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. And too afraid to attend Jesus' burial, it was left to a few women to prepare his body. The disciples seemed utterly incapable of faking a resurrection or risking their lives by stealing a body, uh, nor did it occur to them in their state of despair. For a six-week period after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers. He made his identity so obvious that no disciple could ever deny him again, and none did. His resurrection was irrefutable. Even Jesus' brother James always a holdout, capitulated after one of the appearances, enough so that he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, uh, a historian at that time, he died as one of the early Christian martyrs. Their radical transformation underscored that the irreversible had been reversed. Jesus was alive, and the kingdom of God was on. As we slowly emerge from the insecurity of a pandemic to some form of balkanized uh, normalcy, as someone put it, the kingdom of God offers security to live into now. In Matthew 6, 19 through 34, here Jesus reveals how Christ's resurrection secures the kingdom of God. First, we see the kingdom economy. Now, COVID-19 has shaken the markets and monetary systems, 401Ks are in the dumps, and unemployment is moving to levels we've not seen in our lifetimes. But in the kingdom of God, the economy is in great shape. There's treasure secured by the currency of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beginning with Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the kingdom economy, value is fixed by what is eternal. The guidance for eternal investments is Jesus' resurrection. That guarantees it. His resurrection is the first fruits. Uh, in other words, he was the first, and his life, new life, guarantees our lives for eternity. Eternal life begins now and continues after our resurrection. Imperishable investments are perfectly secured and pay off now and forever. And this is why Jesus said, stop storing up treasures on earth. Treasures on earth are corruptible and therefore insecure. And if we're looking for things with guaranteed payoffs, we should concentrate on ones that don't depreciate or deteriorate. Jesus wasn't banning possessions or private property or even saving money. He wants us to enjoy uh, the good things, the blessings that he provides. What he bans is the selfish accumulation of goods, the hard-heartedness that doesn't feel the world's need, the foolish fantasy that life consists in an abundance of possessions, materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. To make his point, Jesus points to the temporary nature of treasures on earth. Nothing was safe, especially in the ancient world. Rats and mildew destroyed crops and clothing. Less corruptible treasures could be stolen. Thieves could break in, literally dig through the mud brick walls of first century Palestinians' homes and steal. And even if it lasts through this life, whatever we have, we won't take any of it with us anyway. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. By contrast, the treasures in heaven are forever exempt from theft and decay. The words treasures "treasures in heaven refer to whatever is of good and eternal significance that comes out of what is done on earth. And during this crisis, our courageous acts of compassion and sacrifice have the promise of reward and reflect confidence in Christ's resurrection. And Jesus's point is that the things most highly treasured occupy our heart, the center of our personality, which includes our mind and emotions and will. And if money is the highest good, greed takes over. If it's pleasure, life degenerates in self-indulgence but those who set their minds on things above and determined to live under kingdom norms discover at last that their deeds follow them in colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through paul 1 through 4 paul said this since then you have been raised with christ set your hearts on things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Next, Jesus addresses kingdom healthcare. In God's kingdom, the health of our bodies is measured by the health of our eyes. In Matthew six twenty-two and 23, it says, "'The eye is the lamp of the body, If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then uh, the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus says our eyes are healthy, literally generous, is what it means, or unhealthy, literally stingy. Healthy eyes are conditioned by Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has been so generous with us, releasing us, then, to be generous with others. Here the Beatitudes that began Jesus' sermon again come into play. Blessed are the ones not self-absorbed, but see and respond to the needs of others. Being in the condition of poor in spirit and pure in heart lets light in, and the whole body is illuminated. Those with bad eyes walk in spiritual darkness and may not even know how unhealthy their lives have become. The eye is equivalent to the heart. To set the eye or fix the heart are the same. A clear eye is an undivided heart. And if the eye as a window is impaired by jealousy or selfishness or greed, uh, the health of the body is impacted. An evil eye refers to miserliness and selfishness. It makes us intolerant, inhumane, ruthless, and deprives life of lasting significance. A healthy heart is generous and sees others, others' needs with 2020 kingdom vision. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Next, we see kingdom employment. Now, amid the coronavirus pandemic, the Labor Department last Thursday released staggering unemployment numbers. An additional 6.6 million Americans filed initial unemployment claims, nearly matching uh, the week before's record number, revised up to 6.8 million. Uh, And the 3.3 million unemployment claims the week before that brings a three-week total of over 16 million which is a million more than uh, the entire Great Recession in 2007 through 2009, um, which actually took 18 months for that many folks to become unemployed. Uh, One in 10 workers has lost their jobs in the last three weeks. Economists say the May report will be even worse. Once venerable businesses are closing around the country— and uh, if you didn't like your job before the pandemic, well, I'm pretty sure you appreciate having it now. But to find full employment, guaranteed employment, through this life and the next, we must look to the kingdom of God. Now, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The choice between two treasures, where we lay them up, and two visions, where we fix our eyes, presents the choice between two masters whom we'll serve. The term translated master is also rendered Lord in other contexts. Money, or mammon, as it's translated sometimes, is the alternative to God as master, and used as really a general term for anything else. Most Christians disagree with this saying, or at least live as though they do. They refuse such a stark choice and see no necessity uh, to make it. Uh, They can multitask. They can serve two masters at one time. That is no problem. And so they serve God on Sundays, but then mammon on weekdays, uh, but end up serving God with their lips and, and mammon with their hearts. And Jesus says this can't work. God and mammon are portrayed as not as employers, but actually more as slave owners. This is a total commitment either way. The person who divides loyalties automatically works for mammon. They have a full-time employer, but they're not fully satisfied because dividing loyalties is exhausting and there's no rest. When the Bible describes God as jealous, this is why. It's not that he needs attention from his creatures— It's just that his creatures need a fulfilling full-time job. And either God is served with a single-eyed devotion or he's not served at all. And when the choice is seen for what it is, a choice between creator and creature, between a personal God and money, between worship and idolatry, it's inconceivable that anybody could make the wrong choice, but many do. It's not a question of durability and benefit but of comparative worth, the intrinsic worth of the one and the intrinsic worthlessness of the other. With God, our master, we have meaningful work with eternal value. And he provides a full benefits package supplying everything we need. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so we've seen kingdom economy, we've seen kingdom healthcare, and we've looked at kingdom employment. Finally, we come to kingdom environment, the environment in the kingdom. Now, an unexpected victim of the coronavirus pandemic is pollution. (laughs) You may have seen pictures of smog-free skies in L.A., uh, clear clear canals canals in in Venice, and and the Himalayas can be seen from 125 miles away for the first time in decades. It's estimated that the reduction in China uh, due to a pause in... Uh, industrial activity, the reduction in pollution has saved the lives of 4,000 children under five and 73,000 adults over 70. And With 4.2 million premature deaths each year globally linked to air pollution, the pandemic has saved more lives than it's taken. And unfortunately, that will all change when the economic engines rev up again. In the kingdom of God, a different kind of pollution ruins the environment. The bane of our age is worry, anxiety, and the attending depression, which has no place in the clear skies of God's kingdom. Beginning with Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any, any one of you be worrying, by worrying, at a single hour to your life? Verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, the ones who do not believe in God, they run after all these things, And whenever we see a therefore in scripture, we need to understand what it's there for. And therefore, in light of the alternative Jesus sets out, this is the idea. Um, The alternatives between two treasures, corruptible or incorruptible, two eye conditions, light or darkness, two masters, God or money, we're given a clear choice. Only if we choose heavenly treasure, light over darkness, And Jesus as Lord of our lives, will we be anxious for nothing? This means that we refuse to become engrossed in our temporal concerns and seek first the concerns of God instead. Do not worry. It doesn't affirm neglect or apathy or self-indulgence. The point here is not to worry about physical necessities, let alone luxuries, because fretting suggests that our existence is limited to these things. If God has given us life and a body, uh, both more important than food and clothing, will he not also give us all things? Uh, Jesus takes for granted that we are all seeking something. Uh, We need something to live for, something to give meaning to our existence, something to seek, uh, something on which to set our hearts and our minds. The object of our ambition defines who we are and what we do. The preoccupation Jesus forbids us is food, drink, and clothing. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Uh, This is the world's trinity of cares. And if the created order testifies to God's eternal power and divine nature, it testifies equally to his providence. Jesus moves to nature to illustrate why worry isn't environmentally correct. The point is not that disciples need not work. Birds do not simply wait for God to drop food into their beaks, uh, but that they they do not need to worry. God is sovereign over the universe, so even the feeding of a wren falls within his concern. What others may see as natural laws, the believer sees as God at work. Worrying cannot add a moment to our lifespan, in fact, quite the opposite. Someone has said, worrying is betting against yourself. Here, Jesus says, worrying is betting against God and betting against his character and his ways. Worry pollutes our minds with the desperate need to make things happen, because if we don't make it happen, who will? Jesus teaches that obsessional worry is incompatible uh, with the fact of his resurrection. A worry is a problem. (laughs) The weight of worry is heavy during a pandemic. Will I be safe? Will I contract the virus? Will I survive? We're in God's hands. To trust him is enough. God's providence and care are so rich that he clothes the grass with wildflowers that are neither productive nor enduring. Even Solomon, the richest and most extravagant of Israel's monarchs, in all his splendor was not arrayed like one of these fields. The root of anxiety is unbelief, small wonder that Jesus gently chastises his disciples as people of little faith. Jesus' disciples must live lives qualitatively different from those of people who have no trust in God's fatherly care and no goals beyond material things. Seeking first God's kingdom is to pursue the things already prayed for in the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Within this framework of commitment, Jesus' disciples are assured that all the necessary things will be given them by their heavenly Father who demonstrates his faithfulness by his care even for the birds and his concern even for the grass. In view of God's promise to care for us, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus says today has enough trouble. Has enough, it has enough misfortune of its own. And today's grace is sufficient only for today. God gives us grace for each day, and it should not be wasted on tomorrow. If tomorrow brings new trouble, there will be new grace to meet, to meet that. And we confidently face the challenges of each new day because Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. And Jesus will one day raise us to newness of life. In John eleven twenty five 25, and 26, Jesus, speaking to a woman, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Back in the 1850s, A man named Elisha Otis pioneered the development of the safety elevator, which used a special mechanism to lock the elevator in place should the hoisting ropes fail. Otis claimed that any elevator fitted with his brakes, even if all the cables broke, would be safely and swiftly stopped by his new invention. And no one trusted it. Um, Did he get angry? Indignant? No. He simply put himself in... One of his elevators ordered the cables cut and proved to the world by risking his own life that his brakes worked. It's not enough to simply believe the resurrection happened. You have to get into the elevator, cut the cables, and hold on. And Jesus says you have nothing to worry about, but we must take that step. In Luke 9, 24, Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me will save it. It's giving our lives to him. The resurrection succeeded in changing a snuffling band of unreliable followers into fearless followers. Most of the disciples died martyrs' deaths. They they did not forsake what they knew to be true. They lived it out with their whole heart and they gave their lives for Christ because they knew that their lives were secured by Jesus' resurrection and the promise of theirs. Getting us through this pandemic and restoring our economy, our healthcare systems, employment and environment, it doesn't depend on one person. It will require millions of us working together, making sacrifices for the common good. But in the kingdom of God, it does come down to one man, the only God man, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, His life guarantees ours. The resurrection means we're working with a net. (laughs) We get into the elevator, we cut the ropes, and get off on whichever floor the Lord leads us. Christ made a difference, a genuine, lasting difference. We can make a difference too, a genuine, lasting difference. It begins when we're convinced that Christ's love covers us. The resurrection means that God is telling a story and you're in it.